This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Chef Boyard Don't Edition. It's Wednesday, July 6th, 2022. On today's show, the Black Phone comes to us from Bloomhouse, the celebrated indie horror shop. In this one, a creepy masked man has been snatching kids off the streets of a Colorado suburb. But has the so-called grabber met his match in Finney, the soulful innocent, now entrapped in his basement? And then Hulu brings us the TV show The Bear about a Chicago working-class kid who's on his way to Michelin star glory. When he returns home to run his family's neighborhood slop joint, it stars Jeremy Allen White as Carmine the no longer prodigal son. And finally, yeah, yikes, Chef Boyardee in a pre-made pie crust. Uh, Disgusting food videos are going viral. We will discuss. Joining me today is Jamel Bowie, uh, Slate alumnus and, of course, columnist for the um, New York Times. Hey, Jamel, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Always uh, just superb to have you. And Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. (laughs) <laughs> wow does that sound one <laughs> that was so that was that was on brand dana plus a lot of extra that's like a lot of one you okay I don't even feel one about our topics this week i'm really excited to jump into the conversation i don't know i'm just a bad greeter i'm sorry i'm waking oh, up no you're a terrific but you're just what you went hard on july 4th as you do every year right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know me. It's just a patriotism bender around here. All right. Well, well, let's dig in. The Black Phone, it's a small, nicely observed indie horror pick. Uh, the Grabber, is so-called Grabber, is a child snatcher at loose in a small mountain town. Uh, his mini crime spree has disappeared about a half a dozen kids and, of course, cast uh, a pall over, well, you know, everything, of course. Uh, young Finney is a sweet, soulful boy, target of bullies, one of whom is his own broken-down father, a widower drunk and the ultimate moral coward, a physical abuser of his own children. Genre-wise, the inevitable happens. Finney is the latest kid to be snatched, but what if it's this kid with the aid of the mysterious voices calling him on a seemingly disconnected black phone is the one that got away. The film stars Mason Thames, Thames, T-H-A-M-E-S, I'm not sure, but what a wonderful name, is Finney, Madeline McGraw as his younger sister, whose dreams may actually be clairvoyant insights into the grabber's whereabouts and M.O., and Ethan Hawke as the masked perpetrator himself. All right, let's listen to a clip. In the clip, we're going to hear the grabber played by Hawke 
He's talking to Finney, who he now has locked in his soundproof basement. Uh, I should say also throughout most of the movie, the Grabber's wearing a series of incredibly spooky masks. Uh, Let's listen to the clip. I know you're scared and you want to go home. I'll take you home soon. Sister, I got to be upstairs for a while. Something's come up. What? Never mind what. Someone's coming. I'll scream. If someone's upstairs, they'll hear me. With the door shut. No one can hear anything down here. I soundproofed it myself. So shout if you like, you won't bother anyone. If you try to touch me, I'll scratch your face. And whoever's coming will see and ask why. This face? Mm, Of course, he's indicating that creepy, creepy mask. Dana, uh, you're the film critic. I'll start with you. This comes to us from, it's directed and co-written by Scott Derrickson. He directed a Doctor Strange uh, movie, but also he's done uh, indie horror stuff. What did you make of this uh, offering? I mean, I did not expect to like this movie that much, largely because of the advertising campaign, which has been ubiquitous over the past few weeks on buses and so forth. And it's just this big poster of the mask that you just referred to. Uh, Admittedly, a very creepy mask, which I did not realize until reading uh, notes, some prep for this show was designed by Tom Savini, the great gore master of many zombie movies past. It's a very effective mask, but the the advertising campaign indicates that it's going to be all about Ethan Hawke's villain. And I was just afraid, for one thing, that it would have sort of Joker vibes, you know, that it would be a self-indulgent performance, that we would just have to witness a lot of gore in order to watch Ethan Hawke kind of try to outact himself and be a villain, which he rarely is. In fact, this movie is scarcely about that character at all. He's a very effective, scary guy. As you can hear in that scene, he uses his voice in particular, which is a not that gravelly voice, but sort of a high-pitched one really effectively. But it really is a movie all about the kid and about kids in general, about that boy, the, the main character, about, well, we can get into this and decide how much we're going to spoil, but about other boys who were earlier kidnapped by the grabber and about the little girl who is the kidnapped boy's younger sister and is trying to to help find him. And I thought it was such an effective movie about childhood. In fact, I sent my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter, to see the movie with her friends after seeing it because I thought if I had seen this as a teenager, you know, if if you're a teenager that can handle some horror, I would have really, really loved it because it really is in a way about, um, you know, the the younger generation outwitting the older and kind of Mm. figuring the way out of of a tough situation. It's also very short, which I really, really appreciated, sort of small and just like a dirty, gritty horror movie of this style that I grew up watching and and that I love. Mm, all right. Well, Jamel, uh, Dana was, it's fair to say, I think, way more than pleasantly surprised by this movie. What about you? You know, I didn't go into the movie with any particular expectations. And there were things about it that I really did enjoy. But uh, when I finished it, I was sort of I, I had said to my friend who I saw it with, um, I said that it was weird and not weird and sort of like it's crazy and it's, you know, not not weird in that sense, but weird in that like it felt just sort of totally off to me that like there is there is this um, real dazed and confused energy uh, mm. throughout. And there there's even, I mean, my favorite, my personal favorite sequence, this isn't the spoil, spoiler, my personal favorite sequence in the movie involves some sort of like tough teenager who like, you know, beats the crap out of 
someone who interrupts him um, getting a high score in a pinball game. And so sort of like all that dazed and confused 70s childhood stuff I thought was really effective. And then when it became a kind of horror thriller, I did not find that as effective. And the two of them juxtaposed together, I just thought was odd. And I'm not sure mm. that it works necessarily. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I'll break the tie here by saying I thought it was t- terrific. And I think it's interesting that we've kind of fastened on different parts of it because to me, it's the central relationship is between the two siblings, Finney and his younger sister, uh, uh, Gwen, I think her name is. Uh, that kid is, they're both, beautifully portrayed as sensitive kids and trapped in an abusive household for whom school ought to be an escape from this hothouse of like violence and recrimination presided over by their father, but actually just turns out to have all the horrible psychodynamics of bullying. And then those psychodynamics are intensified to the hundred thousandth degree in the basement situation. And so you've been set up to really identify with Finney, the potential victim, to along with like this Odysseus-like pang for his reunion with his sister, his one soulmate, his real rock in the world. Um, And also what he has to do in order to potentially escape requires him becoming the kind of person who hasn't yet learned how to stand up to the bully. I mean, it's a movie about bullying that actually took the time to show you what amity and real love and healthy psychology look like when they occur between two people in a truly reciprocal relationship. I thought it was just weirdly well done. And Jamel, it's interesting. I thought in some ways it failed as a genre movie but succeeded as a almost as a different kind of movie. It's based on a short story, and it feels like it is, which is is a flaw. We're used to, I think, movies being bulked out, often quite creatively, in the second act. Right? This is a movie with classic second act pro- problems. The setup is beautiful. These people become very real real to you very quickly. I actually thought the resolution was quite good, though there were moments when I was afraid it was going to be pat or trite and it just kind of delivered for me and in between it's thin like that's where the gruel gets thinnest no doubt about it dana you acknowledge that right like like all of the kind of intermediary tasks that that bulk out a classic second act where you try and fail try and fail try and fail but in the course of it cumulatively grow and you become the hero who can succeed in the third act like that doesn't exactly happen here but you and i i think perceive this as a virtue I mean, I guess that's true, but I couldn't get into it without spoiling, but I can a- actually think of several examples that yeah, counter that. I mean, right. but to, to be cryptic about it, the calls that come in on the black phone, mm-hmm. right, slowly yep. build the kid's ability to try to figure a way out of his true. situation. True. And yeah, th- I, I would agree that the middle is some, maybe somewhat underwritten, but I think we just see for this podcast and just in general as a critic, I see so many things that are overwritten and overdetermined and I was this made me think of Stranger Things a lot too the TV show which I don't follow but we did talk about the first season of on this show and my first thought on coming out of this movie was it sort of got the Stranger Things remit done in under two hours (laughs) instead of you know four seasons or whatever we're into with Mm -hmm. that show now Mm -hmm. I mean this is less nostalgic than Stranger Things it's from what I know of that show darker and grittier and 
the vision of the 70s that Derrickson delivers is not at all a sort of um, bathed in a licorice pizza kind of glow about the 70s. In fact, it makes it look outside of the serial killer part like a dangerous time to be alive. I thought some of the early stuff about the school fights, the after school fights where, you know, kids gather to watch one kid beat another up were um were really dark because the, the world really that they dark. presuppose is still the world that we live in, you know, even outside of of the basement of of this killer. And mm. that might again be true to the world that it takes place in. It's not an after school special, you know. No. I don't know. The more we talk about it, the more I like this movie and part of what I like about it is that very slightness, you know, that I guess could be could be seen as a fault. I remember at a certain moment toward the climax of the movie when the action is starting to heat up thinking if this movie takes 20 more minutes to end I'll kind of like it but if it can get it done in 10 minutes I'm gonna love it and it got it done in about eight minutes after I had that thought you know and there's something about that compactness that really impressed me I agree with that like I think I think the compactness of the movie really works in its favor I don't have a problem with the fact that it is somewhat shaggy in the beginning again that's the stuff I like the most um, I don't know. I think I would have preferred a movie that were either much more of the childhood movie, uh, 70s childhood, brutal. I mean, you, you, Dana, you mentioned those fights, but like those fights, were, were, these weren't just like kids pushing each other. Like kids were beating the shit out of each other um, in a really kind of striking way. Uh, if there were sort of more of that and almost less of the, uh, you know, the captivity at the hands of Ethan Hawke, I think I would have preferred the movie a bit more i think i would have preferred the movie a bit more if the relationship with the between finney and his sister which is pretty it's strong and fleshed out like amounted more to to anything in terms of the resolution of the film and that's not necessarily a bad thing i think there's something to be said for uh plot and story elements that don't sort of tie tightly together with everything but also for a movie as compact as it is it was sort of like strange to feel at the end that oh we had this entire um aspect of the characters in the story that seemingly is just there for you know uh the edification of the characters themselves which again is fine but it doesn't really amount to much in terms of the 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 dilemma mm-hmm. for Finney. Yeah, no, no, no. I, you've identified something about the movie. We can't talk about it more without spoiling. That's really true. Like it, there's like a kind of non payout. Um, let's talk a little bit about Ethan Hawke in this movie. He's had this interesting late career, mid to late career renaissance. Uh, he's meant to be really like maximally sinister in this film what do you make of him as this kind of a malevolent figure i thought it was great you mentioned earlier that he used his voice and sort of pitched his voice up and i thought that was exactly the right approach like he seems to play this character as like a weird sad guy not in a way that engenders sympathy but in the way mm-hmm. that's just sort of like if you saw him on the street you just go you'd cross the street <laughs> like i don't yep. want to be near that dude um and i thought that was great he has a line reading at some point where he, i think and think it may have been the one we, we use where he's like you know everything's messed up i have to go upstairs um that i thought was just hilarious and terrific and kind of gets got kind of exactly exactly the essence of, of the character. So I thought Ethan Hawke was great. I think this like Hawkesance, Ethan Hawkesance, <laughs> oh, um, <yes. laughs> is, uh, has been terrific. I've really enjoyed seeing him in all sorts of stuff. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm here for him. Brilliant. Okay. I, Jamel, one more very quickly as by way of going around the table, friend of you says, 
what should I go see it or not? Yes or no? What are you doing? Oh, that's tough. I would, I would say yes. And I'm thinking about the personal review I gave it, and I, I may need to like nudge it up just a bit. I would say yes, but like go on like an afternoon when you're paying cheaper movie ticket prices. There you go. Perfect, Dana. You and I are pretty hearty thumbs up. Yes. Yeah, I mean, as I as I said, I saw. I mean, I sent my daughter to see it about two hours after I saw it. You know, not urgently saying this is something you absolutely must do, but she was in the mood to see a movie. I said, "Hey, how about a sort of scary, gritty Stranger Things?" And you know, she was she was into it. Yeah, I would definitely send people to see it. Although, if you're some kind of horror connoisseur, you might find it a little bit underbaked. I thought it was really relative, certainly relative to my expectations. I thought it was a was a gem. For what it's worth, check it out. It's the good black child phone. acting too. As somebody who was just very on good. this very show, mean to a child actor only weeks ago, <laughs> <laughs> I think both the the boy and the girl who plays his little sister are excellent, and they're really well written child characters that aren't generic imperiled infants. I yeah, agree. I, I agree. Excellent. I I love it when we have intelligent fence sitting of a kind on the show. It allows our listeners i think to email in and 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 not just one way or the other all right the black phone check it out let's move on tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yes you heard that right you can talk to a human on the discover customer service team anytime So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, before we go any further, this is typically in our show where we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we got? Steve, now that we have capped entries for the Summer Strut edition, we cannot take any more songs. You cannot imagine how many songs we got, and we're very grateful for them. But that leaves us with only one item of business this week, which is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, a listener named Andrew wrote in with a really smart, really interesting question about how we perceive the relationship between politics and culture on our show and just in general in our world. Um, are politics upstream of culture? Are, is culture upstream of politics? What kind of feedback loop do they produce with each other? And how do you really extricate the two? It was a really well-phrased question, better than I just phrased it in my summary. We will read that out loud in our Slate Plus segment and attempt to answer it. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can, of course, look forward to that conversation at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. As you know, if you're a Slate Plus member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and lots of other shows have those too. You get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate, so you will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. And most important of all, you support us, our magazine, our work, the work of all our wonderful colleagues and the journalism they do. These memberships matter a lot for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once more, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right. Well, The Bear, it's on Hulu. It's a TV show with a setup that will not seem especially fresh. A working class Italian kid makes good in the world of oat cuisine. He was, I think, at 11 Madison, they say at one point, a sous chef. That's as oat as it gets, as, as far as I understand it. Only to return home and take over the family greasy spoon. Yada, yada, right? But The Bear is being praised as a wildly fun and fresh take on the inner dynamics, familial and surrogate familial, that run through such an enterprise uh, as a rich and funny portrait of its host city, Chicago. The show comes from the mind of uh, Christopher Storer, known for production credits on Raimi and Eighth Grade. Uh, It stars Jeremy Allen White as Carmine Eben Moss, 
Bacharach as his foul-mouthed, no-bullshit-all-bullshit cousin, and uh, Io Itabiri as Sydney, who's coming in to help tighten the ship. Uh, in the clip, you're going to hear Carmine. He's trying to navigate his new role as restaurant owner and head chef, but his uh, kitchen staff seems, uh, to put it mildly, a little resistant to the new boss. Let's listen. Tina. Carmen. Ibrahim. What is beef? It's in the oven. Tina, can you start a new shot in there for me, please, chef? I need my fennel first, Jeff. Carmen. Ibrahim. I need my beef. Then I do onion. Then I do potatoes. We have sister. Right, but you could punch him, blanch him, freeze him, fry him before the beef, right? Don't mess up our place. I'm not messing anything up. Jeff, no, please, please do not touch that. This is the one time you listen to me, please do not touch that. That's been going for 12 hours, okay? That's my pot, Jeff. Everybody knows. That's her pot. That's right. pot. Use another pot, please, chef, all right? Corner! Hey, Marcus, I need a double order of bread today, okay, chef? Come on, Carmen, I've been telling you for the past two weeks the mix was fucking, I gotta do all this by hand. Plus, Tina keeps messing with the temperature and it's fucking on my rise. Tina, I know you speak English. Listen, Marcus, we're not meeting dailies, all right? Vendors are cutting us off. I don't have the money to fix it right this second, but I will get you a new mixer, okay? I promise you. Carmen, yeah. buzzer! All right, that's the beef. Come on, give me a hand. All right, Jamel, let me start with you. It's, uh, as I said, you know, there's nothing unexpected about this setup, at least uh, to my mind, but um, in the execution, maybe, made uh, fresh. What do you think? I really enjoyed it. I've watched three episodes so far, and I have enjoyed each and every one of them. I think the show, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I can be kind of a cheap date sometimes. I think the show um, got me immediately when its opening music musical cue was the song New Noise by The Refused, a Swedish hardcore band that I really Ooh. love. And uh, I was sort of like, oh, okay, I'm 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 dialed into what this show is trying to do immediately, and I have uh, I've I've really enjoyed watching it thus far. It's sort of it's quickly paced, which makes sense for the setting. Um, quickly paced, lots of sort of like you know loving shots of food, but also sort of quick cutting between all the various people in the kitchen, um, and and I think that uh, that just sort of like hit some chemicals out in my brain that I enjoy. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, and uh, everything seems real. I don't know. The thing, the thing about it is that the the environment seems, and the characters and the dilemmas they seem real. Um, you know, uh, Carmine's uh, cousin. I am not sure what their familial relationship actually is, but his cousin that seems like a real dude to me. Uh, uh, not someone I necessarily know, but like someone I could imagine. And the same goes for. Um, Sydney, played by Io Adabiri, she seems like a real person that I might actually know. Yeah. It also helps that I've watched three of those up, the three episodes while, while like prepping lunch for my wife and myself. <laughs> so it's sort of, I was just like in the right headspace too. Yeah. Uh, Dana, um, so, uh, you know, totally, you could argue, stale setup, but authenticity and pace throughout, uh, says Jamel. What do you think? Yeah, the pace is, I think, the most remarkable thing about this show in a way, because it moves so quickly. And yet, as Jamel was saying, it gets a lot done in terms of establishing character. You know, these main characters that we mentioned who are all really well drawn, but also all the secondary characters in the kitchen. The pastry chef, an amazing character who starts to figure more largely later on in the season. Everybody is really deftly sketched, but the episodes almost feel too short. Some of them are only, I think, 20 minutes long. I mean, they really careen, you know, and the editing is, is kind of careening, too, as you could hear in that clip. Sometimes that's a little bit too fast moving for the plot. I think this movie is stronger on characterization and on dialogue scene by scene than it is on 
wholly establishing exactly what's going on. I mean, there is no backstory to to a lot of these characters to a degree that is refreshing for one thing. I mean, it's it's not flashbacks every two minutes and over explaining everything, but some things are almost sort of under explained. Like this this place, this restaurant that's apparently been going for generations. It belonged to the parents of the main character played by Jeremy Allen White. Is is this kind of old school sandwich place? I'm not familiar enough with Chicago food to know what establishments it's supposed to be based on or or riffing on in some way but it's not quite established exactly what it you know what kind of um, life did they have growing up with restaurateur parents what were their parents like what happened to their parents I mean apparently they're both dead but we don't know how old the kids were or when that happened there's these three siblings I mean I don't want to get into the whole background of it but I could use I could have used a little bit more flashback or exposition about exactly how we got to this point in the the evolution of the restaurant because it's so chaotic when we first join you know at this moment that that the main character is coming to take over that you're not quite aware why it was so successful for all this time or, mm. or how it continued to function. Maybe the next season will bring about some of that. I don't know about you guys, but I found this addictive enough that I watched all eight episodes. <laughs> I've seen all of the bear, and my first feeling on you know the last frame of the the bear was, "Where is more bear? <laughs> I want more bear." Oh, it's not a perfect show, but it's wildly addictive. In large part, we haven't really talked about it, but I think Jeremy Allen White, the kid who plays Carmi, the main character, is just fantastic. His face is wonderful. He's like yeah. he's he's got a face and not just a look, but a kind of demeanor yeah. that's out of an old school he's like somebody who would yeah. be in an old Scorsese yes. movie almost yes. or Cassavetes you know what I, I mean I was thinking yeah. an Altman movie he seems yeah, like a, Altman, he seems a face out of an Altman movie right uh, and, the, I, and the show kind of seems built around that in a way I mean there's a it's not let's say it's not to the level of a great Altman movie but it's got that um, yeah. overlapping dialogue and rapid editing and that slightly disjointed feeling of a Cassavetes or an Altman era production and that's fresh feeling in itself on tv no i'm I'm totally with you he's got that like elliot gould donald sutherland dustin hoffman era like these yeah. guys are movie stars it was shocking to the world that they could be and of course they they were combined with like the tom cruise 1980s bod you know so it's like the 70s face the 80s bod um he's he's just ca- he's captivating the camera loves him i love him the show you're right dana addictive is exactly the right word i can't get enough of it i resent the shit out of the fact that i had to stop watching in order to make this podcast um <laughs> I, I i'm in a blow i'm on a jamel like you i got through three episodes i can't wait to blow through four through eight it's quick in part because of like this in medias race like we're gonna throw you into the kitchen it's disorienting it's fast-paced it is always on the brink um and this is what it's like and you and you feel that authenticity but it also has these first of all tiny beautifully observed details that are so quick you can miss them because it's like keep up keep up keep up pay attention not to interrupt but but for example and this kind of gets to dana's point about but the lack the lack of backstory but also i think this this Whereas well for the show, there's a scene, I think, in the second episode where um, Carmine's talking to his sister on the phone and she's making dinner. And there's a, just a quick, the camera moves to show what she's making. She's making a chicken piccata and it looks beautiful. And you're like, oh. that tells you so much about her and their her. family, right? Sort yeah. of like, oh, the, all the kids get food. Yeah. Like, it, even if exactly. they're not in the business. Yeah, exactly. And there's another one, Jamel, I'll give you. There's, they're laying, he, it's like, I think, r- right Really early on in episode one, he's laying out the sides that he's going to serve that night, and, and they're just in little plastic to-go 
type containers and he takes a little napkin and he does that thing that servers do at like, you know, 11 Madison or, or Noma or whatever, where they just wipe the plate clean along the perimeter. And he does it with the little, it's like a little Michelin touch in the middle of this joint. And it's, it's just perfect. It just shows you who this guy is and what his standards have been. Um, there's an Oliver Platt sighting. There's just not enough Oliver Platt in my life. And uh, that scene with him is marvelous. That's a great character. The soundtrack, it goes everywhere. And as someone who hates Wilco, I was even like, God damn, like that <laughs> fucking song works there, right? And they picked the most transcendent, um, not only the most transcendent Van Morrison song, St. Dominic's Preview, but the transcendent live performance from the early 70s. It just, the pace and energy off the charts, like, I, I, you know, I know they're going to mystic pizza me here. I think I strongly suspect they're going to mystic pizza me here. I don't care. I want it to happen so badly. I'm not sure what mystic being mystic pizza indicates. I, I saw that movie too many decades ago. What what are you talking about? The setup makes you think that the snobby food critic is going to come in in the end and have a bite of the sandwich and like that look of revelatory joy on his face and on and on and everyone walks away happy. They're not going to do it, but but that's how trite the setup is. But I just whatever they do, I don't care. We should say Jamal. Also, there's the shadow over the whole thing. I'm curious to hear how you rate its authenticity of the dead of the dead brother uh, michael who um i thought they handled it well it's just yet another element that can be sort of slap dashedly thrown in there for pathos and and just seems lazy it didn't strike me as lazy but what do you think yeah it didn't strike me as lazy either i think i think you actually get something that is very true about this show which is that it does have a lot of seemingly seeming cliches but i think it's executed at such a high level i mean not unlike the food in the show right sort of like a a a italian beef sandwich is not you know it's not there's not that much to it um but you know executing it at a high level can make it something great and and likewise the show seems does have quite a few cliches in it um uh, but the show itself it it, it, executing its it's sort of vision at such a high level that you can kind of look past them and it doesn't really, it doesn't really bother you uh, all that much. And, and the, the dead brother hovering over all that is another one of those cliches. And it doesn't, he, he's brought in actually quite sparingly again, only three episodes, only seen three episodes, but after the first episode, he's not really sort of he's not there all that much. He's sort of like, you know, things happen, people talk, their conversations that kind of like raise this specter again, but it's not as if there's like a picture of the guy in the kitchen looming over everyone. There is a moment when we see him in a flashback, and I don't think this is revealing too much. The show is very light, possibly too light on flashbacks, and we only get to glimpse the brother briefly, the, the, the dead brother who handed his restaurant down to his little brother. But when you do, he's played by John Bernthal, which is a pretty big actor to get for such a small role. And it's such a smart move to get somebody like that, because if you picture John Bernthal's face, it also comes from that world, yeah. right? I mean, it's yeah. very much from that kind of like new Hollywood world of, of a sort of mug, you know? And uh, and he seems very believable as this brother who would be so charismatic that he could hold this shambling restaurant together with just sheer force of personality. Can I, can I say just one thing on the point about sort of these faces looking like they're from the 70s? Actually, it's two things. The first is that I... I'm just a sucker for any media, any TV show or movie um, that is about people do like executing a craft, mm-hmm. whether or not that whether that's cooking, whether that's journalism, whether that's you know. And this gets to the, the to your point, Dana, about 
um, you know, seventies New Hollywood. What whether that's being a you know a a really intense strip club owner. I'm thinking of the killing of a Chinese bookie, which is what this show kind of reminds me of in some ways. Um, so it's sort of like the combination of those two things is just sort of like manna from heaven for me. I'm just like a happy camper um, watching it. Oh yeah, I thought about Cassavetes a lot watching it, but I didn't think specifically of Killing a Chinese Bookie, and that's so perfect because it is also about a very shambling business, right? right? That's always on the verge of falling apart, but it's being run lovingly by this incredible craftsman. I do have a question, and maybe this goes out to Chicago listeners, but when I was watching this with my partner, we were confused by the nature of this restaurant. Like, it seemed somewhat incoherent that there would be this place that would have both these very kind of, you know, just working class beef sandwiches that seems to be, it's called the original beef of Chicago land, right? It's just this very old school basic place. But then they also have a pastry chef who's crafting these incredible chocolate cakes with orange zest on top. And there's just, there seem to be these fancy things going on in the corner. And this is separate from the fact that, you know, this this four-star Michelin chef is coming in to run the place. We're talking about like the extant menu on this beloved Chicago institution just seems to be strangely unbalanced. And I kind of can't imagine what place it's supposed to be modeled after. So if anybody knows a place like that, tell me both so I can relieve my um, my curiosity and so I can go eat there next time I'm in Chicago. Yeah, so I'm, I'm obviously not a Chicago person, but I mean, that does remind me of, you know, there's a beloved local place in Charlottesville that closed down, you know, it's been, all, it's been years now. Um, but it was the kind of, you know, it was both sort of like a meet and three, but also they would occasionally do sort of like, you know, fancy stuff. And then, then they would also do great pastries. And it kind of just like, it was a little bit of everything. And that might actually explain why it went on there. <laughs> <laughs> right, like it, nobody knew who who ate there, and I guess that's part of the story of this of this show is that they're sort of trying to redefine what the restaurant is. But it is supposed to be this ongoing institution that people line up outside every day for these sandwiches. And I kind of wished at the beginning there had been a little bit more of an establishing of like, here's what the menu is now, so that we know when Carmi comes in mm. and starts to change it, what those changes mean. Okay, well, three really enthusiastic thumbs up, and I'd love love to hear from Chicagoans about the authenticity of the show and like place for us in the culinary landscape. This restaurant, anyway, uh, it's the Bay Arts on Hulu. Check it out. We uh, we all loved it. Moving on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Well, there's a video called Easiest Dinner Hack Ever, exclamation point, exclamation point, many exclamation points. It's uh, earned, I guess is the word, 42 million views. It's basically a home cook, seems like maybe a suburban mom. I don't know. Um, she she makes what effectively amounts to a chef Boyardee slop pie. 
She starts with a couple of cans of Chef Boyardee's, some pre-shredded mozzarella, pre-packed, pre-shredded mozzarella, uh, a store-bought pie crust in the already in the tin, and then she takes some. She begins mixing those together, and then the uh, uh, the the pièce de résistance here. She lays out some Wonder Bread, uh, slathers it in butter, and then she just powders it in uh, garlic powder, and then she presses her. I'm sure I didn't dream this. I'm pretty sure I didn't dream this. She just presses her forearms down on this <laughs> Wonder Bread. You just kind of flatten them out like this. Perfect. Really get that powder in there. Awesome. Before stacking it and cutting off the crust, because as she assures us, no child wants to eat crust. Pops it all in the oven, and out comes this, what to even call it, but of course social media went crazy for this, uh, inspired all kinds of derision. Um, Jamil, I'm going to start with you. You are a man of many, many parts. Two of them are um, cooking and being the one genuinely likable man on social media, and you bring them the two together quite well. Uh, we found your anti-self here. What on earth is going on here? What did you make of this trend of disgusting food videos garnering billions and billions of views? So I have a TikTok. And one of the things I do on my TikTok is you can do this thing called duetting where you it shows one video on one side of the screen and then you kind of can comment on it. And so I've taken to sort of doing that with some of these food videos because they are really quite baffling. And it's hard sometimes to know which ones are like a bit, you know, like someone actually doing something terrible to food for like, you know, to be to become viral um, and which ones are someone sincerely making something that they think is great and is actually sort of kind of terrible. Um, and I, I, I think I mean, I think for viewers, there's sort of like the same um you know, fascination and disgust that comes with watching any kind of horrific thing happening, like watching a popular genre of video on YouTube is like, you know, someone like popping pimples, right? Sort of those sorts of things. Um, and I think it's the same, the same kind of urge. It's sort of like, this is terrible and looks horrible and you kind of can't turn away. Um, but there, I mean, there, I think, I think it, 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 a huge portion of TikTok and similar social media is people just like is people making bad food and people watching other people make bad food. And I couldn't fully explain to you what is so appealing about it, but it is in a weird way very appealing. I, I'm thinking of one I watched of someone making a pasta dish that was just sort of like like bland. And sort of have like you know pasta and cheese and like you know gray looking chicken and uh, all sorts of things thrown in that just was like why would you and it seemed like sincere it didn't seem like a joke it seemed like this is like this is yeah this is good eating to me and it's sort of like I don't understand anything about this dish or like anything about your taste buds <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense to me yeah it Jamel it puts his Dana puts his finger on something I hadn't quite thought of but it's this whopping discrepancy between listen whatever you get up to in the intimacy of your own kitchen to satisfy your appetite within reason is cool it's like that's the you know your prerogative but to then be proud of it in this way and platform it to the entire universe it's that's what you're watching more than the making of like you know fish in a coffee maker you know it's it's you're watching someone's 
apparent total lack of self-awareness or like Warholian capacity for irony so deep and pervasive there's no discrepancy between sincerity and inauthenticity anymore. I don't know. Anyway, that, I'm blabbing because I'm mystified, basically. Sort me out. I mean, I think that distinction is actually important. It's crucial whether these these things are being sincerely shared as somebody's cooking tip that they enjoy in the privacy of their own home or whether they're just perverse trolling trying to gross people out and get views. That's a hugely important distinction that to me goes from giving it some degree of fascination, although personally, I would never watch someone popping a pimple on a video <laughs> and these just gross me out so much I could hardly watch them for the purposes of research. But Especially if, as seems to be the case with most of these, like the SpaghettiO pie lady, if these people are just trolling and all they're trying to do is, you know, gross people out with stuff that they would never eat in their lives, then I, I don't know. I just feel pranked and, and bored by the whole phenomenon. Like it's very, very different if, you know, if we're exchanging food lore and food culture and then sort of like being horrified and or mocking each other's food cultures. It's something entirely different if someone is just as one of these things was, I think, like baking something in a bed of nerd candies, you know, mm. so as to get likes or get shares and then when this person is asked like do you actually eat your creations they say i'm just an entertainer you know as some mm -hmm. of these food bloggers do i don't know i mean to me that distinction between am i being trolled or am i witnessing someone's actual cooking life is a really crucial one in terms of whether i want to watch or i just feel annoyed by the whole phenomenon and then i was thinking jamel about your serial videos i mean in a way you're a practitioner of this art but i respect your practice of it more when you have your your serial eats right what's it called your your yeah it's called serial eats yeah yeah um which we've talked about on this show i think we did a, a slate plus segment about it and watching you plow your way through various horrifying breakfast foods is is fun watching to me because it feels like, well, for one thing, you're really eating them, right? You're not just trying to gross people out with a visual and then throwing the whole thing away when the camera is off. And I don't know, it feels like you as an eater and as a cook are exploring a world of food that is horrifying yet fascinating to you. If that was what were happening in these videos, I would find them more fun and watchable. But I don't know, just just the, the cynicism of like, look how gross I can be, mm -hmm. and then you share it seems really annoying to me. I'm not on TikTok, but these often get auto-played into my Twitter feed <laughs> if there's one that goes really viral. And suddenly, without having ever asked for it, I'm, I'm seeing somebody put, you know, a dozen eggs into a giant bowl of melted Velveeta or something like that. And I just I just find it annoying. So, so two things. One, I think there's there's a um, there's a guy on TikTok who I think you would actually like, and he is some sort of like home cook bake baker guy, but he cooks recipes from like mid century to early twentieth century, and so those are it's just interesting to watch him make these things because it's usually baked goods, and he really does focus on sort of depression era, um, and so it's sort of fun to see oh what actually turns out pretty well, and then what is actually sort of horrifying, and you're kind of getting a glimpse of so what may have been kitchen staples for Americans during this period. So he's actually good to watch, and it's a good combination of like genuinely informative, but also like oh this is kind of gross, and that's fun too. Um, the the other thing is that I think what so what, having watched uh, uh, too many cooking videos on TikTok, some of which are obviously trolling, some of which are just people making food and like displaying it for the world to see and they, they think the food is good or whatever. Um, 
Um, some of it's sort of like, you know, here's an easy thing you can make for your family that always ends up being sort of like chicken breasts and like cream cheese and like, you know, salsa in a crock pot. Um, part of what this has revealed to me is just how like my, so like I'm obsessed with food. I love cooking. Um, it's like one of my favorite activities. I spend a lot of time thinking about it and thinking about the meals that I'm going to prepare for the family and for myself. Um, and it's sort of a glimpse into the world of, I think many Americans, even most Americans who like just don't care that much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and not in a bad way, just like don't have the time, don't have the interest. Um, uh, and just sort of like, are just trying to like consume food, like trying to like, you know, save themselves, um, and will enjoy something nice that's made for them, but they're not going to go out of their way to do it for themselves. And I think I, in a weird way, I found it sort of like, I found it almost sort of useful in terms of sort of like thinking about, um, how people, how like a typical person might like, you know, in, experience food or experience restaurants or whatever, um, versus, uh, an admittedly like crazy person like myself, um, and it's sort of a thing that you can translate to like other mediums. Like it, it's useful, um, you know, to know that maybe the person encountering your column isn't necessarily going to be someone who like you know religiously consumes political media, but may you know just only uh, only occasionally consume it. Don't re- doesn't really care that much about it. Um, uh, and you sort of have to like keep that person in mind. And if I feel like if I were running a restaurant, like watching these videos would actually be kind of useful for the same reason sort of like what is, what does the typical person how does the typical person interact with and experience food mm-hmm. um and it's it's more like you know the bad pasta than it is like you know for for well, I, I mentioned earlier that i watched some of the bear while making um lunch for my wife and myself it's it's less like my kind of like um you know <laughs> grain bowl with like farro and brussels sprouts and the vinaigrette or whatever yeah i mean picking up on on that directly it it reminded me jamel also of all the millions or billions really billions of of um you know at home hobbyist musicians who upload their cover of you know time after time or whatever and it's it's such a wide range and it's it's kind of it has a true beauty to it both when someone absolutely nails it and and at the beginning of the video you think how is this person right and of course we're so conditioned by pop stardom to think of of people who can actually play and sing beautifully as looking a certain way which of course totally artificial connection um and and the most unexpected people do the most like genuinely accomplished and very beautiful covers at the same time you know, people mangle it completely or sing consistently a half note off or, you know, they're just awful. And what you think at that moment is, to me, what I take away isn't some sick schadenfreude. Instead, it's like that person wants to make music for themselves, right? They don't want to just be a passive consumer of it. And sure, there's some amusing, you know, lack of self-awareness there. That's a, that's a, you know, sort of a, cheap present to give oneself as the viewer instead it's like i just the larger principle that i extrapolate from it is one i truly believe in as a shitty at-home musician which is like i just have to make my own music i don't care how bad it is i will try not to force it on others but 
I, I love it too much not to try to make it myself. And at that moment, I understand why Bob Dylan's, you know, na- nasal twang and three chords conduces to a kind of transcendence and why mine doesn't, <laughs> let's just say. But, you know, it's, it's Dana, I'll, I'll, I'll pivot it back to food a little bit by saying, you know, Betty Crocker didn't take off until they realized if you allowed the homemaker to add an egg, then all of a sudden, and it was very gendered, she would feel as though she was still cooking the family meal and not just opening a package. And there's that element of it too. It's like we, surrounded by this consumer culture of absurd plenty in which everything is pre-made for us and even our own experience of it seems to come pre-packaged in some sense. And that this is this, this I think, kind of weirdly heroic way of fighting back against that and saying, actually, the, 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 uh, you know, the abiding human principle here is creativity selfhood via creativity fuck you i'm going to do it regardless of how laughable it might be to others i guess i mean once again you're imputing a lot of sincerity <laughs> to these videos i still don't i still don't hear either of you responding to just like somebody deliberately trolling you by baking potatoes within a bed of nerds i mean that is just that <laughs> so is not true. somebody expressing their inner creativity yeah, but Dana, after all that's, these that's years absolutely true yes after all these years though don't you know that i'm the soulful innocent and trapped in the basement of <laughs> consumer culture or at least that's how i conceive it but that's my laughable lack of self-awareness that i think i'm that person please i mean i'm just going to send our listeners to jamel's cereal eats like if you oh, want yes. gross food done right that's that's the place to go all right well we'll leave it there it was fun but uh but oh man these videos just crazy check them out if someone has a theory about the ratio of prankishness to touching sincerity we'd love to hear it shoot us an email all right Moving on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have this week? Uh, I am actually bursting with things to endorse this week, but I will keep it to one, although the one has sort of two prongs. So Peter Brook, the legendary theater director, died last week at 97. He had been around for an incredibly long time. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like from as early as I remember what theater was, I would always hear about, oh, Peter Brook is directing this. Peter Brook is directing that. I myself have never seen a production directed by him, but it seemed like I was always just coming up against one, hearing about one, being in a town where some legendary show had just closed. And he did everything from, you know, Shakespeare to opera to famously he did a version for the BBC of the Mahabharata, the Hindu epic. And he was a really revolutionary theater director in ways that I probably can't really speak to as a non-theater scholar. I mean, our beloved Isaac Butler would be would be great to, to hear on this. But I did some digging into Peter Brook over the weekend. And uh, in addition to reading a couple great obits on him, I ended up coming across this documentary called Brook by Brook, an Intimate Portrait. And it's just an hour-long interview with Peter Brook done in 2001, so 20 years ago, but he was already an older man because he died at 97. And uh, and he's just looking back on a, on a life of directing and talking about theater and, and what it means to him. He's fantastically well-spoken. It really makes you want to dig more into his work. And then after that, you can go on a big YouTube dive and see a lot of things, including a complete Hamlet that he directed in 2002 with Adrian Lester is Hamlet that at least to go by the the comments on this video is you know one of the the great Hamlets ever so and it's a version of the play I believe that was cut down edited and sort of recast by Brooke himself so go on a Peter Brooke deep dive is my main endorsement but you can start with Brooke by Brooke an intimate portrait the one hour documentary and the Adrian Lester as Hamlet uh, performance both on YouTube in their entirety
Yeah, uh, fabulous, Dana. I'm with you. I heard that name in my from my adolescence on repeatedly. This god of theater, I I know so embarrassingly little about him. I I can't wait to watch it. Jamel, uh, what do you have? Um, so currently on Criterion Channel, there is a uh, you know series to do with a program series. It's one of the great things about the the app about the service, and one of them is called In the Ring: Boxing on Screen, and it's sixteen films, some of which you've probably heard of: Raging Bull, um, uh, When We Were Kings, uh, Rocco and His Brothers. But one I had never heard of and recently watched and was utterly delighted by it. And the film is called Gentleman Jim. Um, it's directed by Raul, Raul Walsh, and it stars Errol Flynn. It's from 1942, and it is it's about this you know working class Irish bank teller who aspires to be a gentleman and is also a talented boxer and becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. And he doesn't really experience real setbacks. There's like very little friction. It's sort of like it's a pretty effortless glide from sort of bottom to top, and yet. Despite the lack of, you might say, dramatic tension, it is an utterly delightful film. Errol Flynn is so charming and so fun to watch. He's obviously very athletic, and he apparently trained quite a bit for the role. And so much of the boxing on screen is just him in the ring. Um, And I don't know much of Raul Walsh's work, but the boxing is so dynamic uh, and, and boxing, I think, is a very cinematic sport to begin with. Two people in a ring, it's sort of hard not to make it dynamic. But this was, like, the the first fight in the film. Um, I was, like, riveted. <laughs> it's, like, a very, mm. like, dynamic and fun to watch uh, uh, fight. Um, and, yeah, it's just, like, it's a great movie. And, yeah, so Gentleman Jim on the Criterion Channel. Highly, highly recommend it. I cannot wait that. Sounds very cool. Dana, off the top of your head, Raul Walsh, am I blanking? Is there a big one? I feel like there might be. I just like opened up his page on Letterboxd, and I, I feel like a dummy now because he directed White Heat and High Sierra, oh, and they go. drive yeah, by yeah. High night. Sierra, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah, he's known as a Western guy. All right, I'm going to uh, endorse a kind of involving read that I can't recommend highly enough. It's an essay by Timothy Snyder, uh, uh, the historian, Yale historian, who's come to only greater prominence, it seems, with every passing year, in part because he's, you know, he wrote Bloodlands, in some ways, the definitive book on the Ukraine crisis from the World War II era, which involved uh, the Ukraine being a plaything between uh, the Nazis and the Stalinists, uh, between Russia and Germany, resulting in just an bl- absolute bloodbath. Um, he was even, you know, I mean, it's just the, the rise of Trump. He became a voice of sort of sober, um, you know, defense of the essential values of liberalism. And it had a huge bestseller in on tyranny. You're probably familiar with him. Anyway, he has written a long, extensive, beautifully calm and and to my mind, exquisitely argued rejoinder to one of my heroes, Jürgen Habermas, the German philosopher who's, I think, widely regarded as the living embodiment of um, of the uh, Enlightenment, the one remaining, I guess, uh, living embodiment of the European Enlightenment. Um, and Habermas, not to get esoteric, but the reason why Snyder felt compelled to issue a public rebuke to Habermas isn't because he doesn't admire him, it's because you know, Habermas's central commitment is to the idea of rational communicators coming together and that the essence of enlightenment truth is through a kind of extended uh, conversation between negotiators. And, you know, 
Snyder has effectively said this is the German disease vis-a-vis Ukraine in a nutshell. This idea that endless suasion and talk and nuancing actually becomes it actually becomes a contribution to the malevolent side in a certain kind of conflict i.e. a conflict that cannot be described in the in the traditional terms of liberalism between mutually respect respectful opponents of course putin isn't that he's not part of a of a reasoned dialogue at all he's a brutalist uh, uh, currently attempting to effectively enslave another autonomous country and snyder just very carefully lays out why this is a total failure of thought to, to approach this conflict in this way um, and how it's it's uh, representative, sadly, of German elites. But I, I would recommend it for an, another reason as well, which is that oddly for all of its dis- total dismantling of Habermas's reasoning and his history, it's also in a way it honors the master in some sense because it itself is such a perfect example of communicative rationality. It, it contains no insults. There's nothing ad hominem about it. It's devoted. It, it's not a performance meant to show you what a genius Timothy Snyder is. It's not an attempt to dunk on someone or publicly humiliate them. It's an attempt to reason one's way in dialogue with someone else you disagree with perhaps vehemently toward a possible common truth, and at the same time honoring the agency and the political dignity of the Ukrainians. I think it's a masterful performance, and I say this as someone who in some ways, I mean with huge qualifications, but in some ways, you know, worships what Habermas's lifelong project has been. Anyway, the piece is Germans have been involved in the war chiefly on the wrong side by Timothy Snyder, and we will post a link to it on our show page. Jamal, thank you so much for coming on the show. As always, just an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it is always my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And uh, Dana, week after week, an awesome pleasure talking to you too. Really yes. fun. Yes. I wish you an unwan farewell. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nick Bretel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Jamel Bowie and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.